Good morning. Welcome to the Crossroads Podcast. I am the producer, none other than Dr. Bruce A. Smith, in the heart of West Memphis, Arkansas. Today's podcast is going to be on the Black Experience. And we want to welcome our host today, Dr. Leo Adams. Take it, Doc. Good morning, good morning, good morning. And God bless to each of you on this last Saturday of the month of February. Today is Saturday, February 27th, AD 2021. And we want to welcome you to our podcast entitled Crossroads where our symbols are the interstate markings of Interstate 40, traveling east and west, and the interstate markings of Interstate 55, which travels north and south. It is here where north and south meets east and west, where coming together is the epicenter and the center point. It is where our journey commences, the crossroads, where we discuss contemporary topics of interest with leading men and women in business and industry, politics and government, public safety, health and wellness, neighborhood and community development, where we speak about education and religion, where we discuss criminal justice reform and the criminal justice system and the law. These and other issues of major concern are discussed and analyzed because they affect us as individuals as groups, as a nation, and as a world. The month of February, we have been spotlighting Black History Month, and this is the fourth installment of a four-part series. Our theme is the Black experience, Africa to America. Special thanks is being given to our producer, Dr. Bruce Smith who is the co-owner of BVS Gospelnet, along with his wife, Dr. Victoria Smith. And without them, this podcast would not be possible. I want to thank you, Drs. Bruce and Victoria Smith. Also, I want to thank the podcast listening audience for your tuning in, and you can always inbox us with your questions, your comments, and your concerns. And if you like this podcast, hit the follow button. And thank you so very much for joining us on this podcast. The nation is being bombarded with so many issues that confront us on a daily basis. And so we come today to discuss those issues. We have seen the good, we've seen the bad, and we're still dealing with the ugly. We're dealing with the coronavirus issue, the efficacy of obtaining and distribution uh, and the continued deaths from the virus. We are bombarded with homicides and suicides, especially by our youth and young adults. Schools and administrations are faced with the threat of a loss of funds. If state, states don't 
return their students and schools to live classes. We're dealing with poor academic achievement and possible state sanctions against school systems. The pandemic is affecting businesses and hospitals and employment and jobs and families. So all of these things we're dealing with in this 21st century, a virus that none of us can ever say that we have been a witness to. And yet we have to deal with these things in the midst of uncertain and trying times. I wanna thank all of our previous co-producers, excuse me, co-producers and hosts for this month of February. Thank you so very much. You have done an outstanding job. And I wanna let you know today uh, that we believe that we've also saved the best for last. I would like to introduce uh, to you in uh, our guest this morning. And I want to thank you so very much. Our guest this morning is the founder of Cooperative Strategies, an attorney, a mediator, an author who started the career of practicing personal injury and medical malpractice law in Texas and Washington, D.C. Our guest was inspired to create CSFL after several years working with parents through her company, Gardner Parenting Consultants. In that work, our guest coached parents struggling to co-parent to create peaceful two-household families that supported their children. And you know, our children definitely need all of the parental support and encouragement that they can get during times such as these. Having grown up in a cooperative two-household family, our guest this morning became passionate about helping parents make a conscious decision to protect and provide for their children into adulthood. Trained in mediation, collaborative practice, and parenting coordination, Sheila guides clients toward mutually acceptable resolutions that reflect their highest priorities. Family practice areas include prenuptial and postnuptial agreements, adoption, paternity, divorce, separation, creation and modification of parenting plans, child support, guardianship, name change, and power of attorney. Our host this morning has authored two books, Two Houses, One Family, and Made of Love, which celebrates successful 
co-parenting families. On this morning, I want to welcome our guest, Sheila Adams Gardner, to our podcast. She is on, I'm going to ask her if you can hear me to scroll down and there is a telephone uh, icon, hit that button and it will bring up and say call in. And when you hit that call in button, you are in as my guest. Hello, am I on? Good morning, good morning, and good morning. Yes, good morning. you are on. <laughs> good morning, Dr. Adams, my cousin. <laughs> Thank you so very much. I'm glad you were able to navigate uh, through the system. Uh, I didn't tell my listeners, uh, we have been traveling across the country. Last week, uh, we traveled north to the great city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we had an outstanding show with Dr. Patricia Syfax. And today we're traveling northeast outside of Washington, D.C., in the state of Virginia, where our guest is none other than Sheila Adams Gardner. And I want to formally welcome you to Crossroads at this time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Adams. I am so pleased to be here. Good morning. All right. We're going to go ahead and and get into our uh, interview with you on today. Sure. Um, I usually ask my listeners for giving to give me a just a brief background, and it doesn't have to be just brief. It can be as extensive as you desire to be as we talk about your early childhood. Sure. Uh, talk about your family, uh, your family surroundings, and um, what has led up to where you are today. And so wherever you are, you just dig right in, and uh, we'll try to fill in some gaps uh, to uh, allow you the opportunity to, to expound in any area that you so desire. All righty. Well, thank you again. Um, as you said, I'm Sheila Adams Gardner, Sheila Denise Adams Gardner. I am uh, the daughter of Juanita Adams, Juanita Guy Adams, who grew up in Memphis, and Cleotha Adams, who also grew up in Memphis in Mississippi. My parents were a part of that migration north that a lot of African-Americans took in the 30s, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. My parents moved to Milwaukee uh, back in 1959, where my dad, he had gone to school for, he wanted to be an entrepreneur. He wanted to have his um, own auto body shop. And he went um, from high school to Stevens Automotive School there in St. Louis. He and my mom have been dating for a while, so they had this big plan of moving to Milwaukee and, and getting married and starting their family there, which they did. And I am the fourth 
the youngest of the four girls between them. When I was seven years old, my parents divorced. And at that time, we were the only family that we knew that, that was in our community at that time. And this was like 1972 or 75, really, when they finished the whole process. And um, we didn't have, they didn't have a lot of models, but my parents, looking back, and my parents never, to this day, my mother passed in 2016, I never saw my parents argue ever. Um, I saw my dad every day. We even had vacations together. My kids are all grown. I have three children. They're all grown. And to this day, they still can't tell you exactly which aunts and uncles and cousins go with which grandparent because everyone was always together. And for me, um, that was a wonderful way to grow up. I knew early on that my parents' relationship, their marital relationship ended. They were no longer a romantic couple, but I always knew that my parents were a team. They always worked together. Um, and once I got to be an adult, I realized how difficult it must have been. And I was able to ask them questions and, and get sort of a perspective of what they, the, the commitment they made to us as four girls growing up and what that took. So I, you know, the work that I do now is really out of passion. I went on to, um, I went to Howard University. I graduated from Howard University in 1990. My now husband and I both graduated from there. And I went on to law school at Thurgood Marshall in Houston. My husband and I, my husband is a ear, nose, and throat surgeon. And he and I wanted to stay together for graduate school because we were so in love and we were planning to get married. So um, we ended up in Houston. He got a full ride to um, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. So we both went there and I, I went to TSU's law school there. And at that time, you know, I'd grown up with this sense of community and helping out. So I always wanted to do sort of a pub public interest law. And I worked for a congressman who, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee took his spot. Uh, I worked for Craig Washington in law school. And I also worked for uh, legal aid. So for me, growing up, my mother was in civil rights. Volunteerism was huge um, for value for my family, my, both my parents. So for me, that was my, my area. And um, when my husband got his residency, his surgical residency was at Georgetown. So that's how we ended up back here in the DC area. And I started volunteering and working with, I worked with civil rights activist, Debbie Roundtree, and learned so much from her. And I ended up volunteering and, and I got a job doing personal, uh, personal injury law. But for me, that, you know, that was a job that wasn't a passion. And the work that I do now is really related to who I am as a person, which is a nurturer, one who really sees the gift that my parents have given me. Uh, and my sisters and my children and their great grandchildren um, of commitment to family. And I started this work, Cooperative Strategies Family Law, really honoring them and just committed to helping other families realize that, you know what, if your relationship doesn't work out, that's okay, but you must be a family for your children. So that is how I got to you know, where I am now and what I do. Um, 
the other thing, as you're talking about uh, African-American history, and we can talk a little bit later, as you know, I am a serious ge uh, genealogist. I have 2,600 people on my family tree, and I've gotten back into 1700s with our African-American ancestors and with our white ones, I don't know, back to the 1500s, if you count those. Um, so that's one of my passions, and that also fuels my work. I, I would think of my ancestors. I think I work hard because I know what the blood that pumps through me, the people, the dreams, the um, effervescence, the fortitude. So those are things that fuel me. I have plenty to talk about. <laughs> so that gives you like a brief synopsis. I have three children. Um, my kids are, this year they'll be 25, 23, and 21. They are amazing people doing amazing things. And I'm, I'm really proud. My nest is empty and my kids are um, living out their passions. And um, I, have, I have lots to share. So yeah, that's a lot for you to pick from. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, one of the things that I heard you say was that uh, many of our people, uh, Black, uh, left the South, and of course, many of us are still here, but they left the South uh, during the Great Migration Era uh, to escape uh, some of the uh, problems and situations uh, that people of color found themselves in, especially uh, with a lack of economic opportunity uh, mistreatment and maltreatment by the law, uh, lack of Terrorism. educational advancement, and many other things. But I also heard you say, especially at the fact that your mother uh, was involved in um, civil rights struggle there mm -hmm. in the city of Milwaukee. And I would have thought that perhaps uh, by them uh, traveling up north, uh, that they would have escaped uh, those vestiges of uh, segregation and uh, the practices that came with them. So could you expound on that? Sure, absolutely. Yes, my mother was involved in, she was one of the, one of the founding members of the Milwaukee chapter of CORE, the Congress of Equal, uh, Equal Rights, and it you know, had chapters all around the country. She also was involved in a, a, a tons of protests, not just with that organization, but a few others. And she, I have a, a couple of newspaper articles of her, one with her six months pregnant with my older sister standing in front of a cement truck. This was like 1965. She's standing in front of a cement truck, big old belly, six months pregnant, because they were, the city of Milwaukee was trying to build another school to maintain as a segregated school. So they were protesting against busing and busing for the intent to segregate and creating schools for, with the intention to segregate. So she, um, she did that. She also, I mean, they, she was involved in so many protests and, um, we really, we grew up with this sense of community. She was also very involved in that, 
the church, always very involved in volunteering. I grew up with, you know, whenever there were uh, elections, I basically grew up at the polls. My mother would be a priest, you know, work at the precincts. We knew how important it was to be um, connected to our community, to be proud of our community. We knew our local legislators. In fact, that was my earliest thing was wanting to be um, an alderman because I that those were jobs that I saw that I thought, okay, this is how you can really connect with helping people. But yeah, she, she did a ton of things. So I'm really proud of her. Outstanding. Um, I know that uh, in your uh, discussing of your background, you mentioned that your dad uh, wanted to be in business. Uh, you have other uh, family members that are in education. Uh, what drove you? Uh, what motivated you? And I know for the most part that uh, you seem to be a trailblazer and that you have stretched uh, from north uh, all the way down south in the Texas area and now back northeast uh, to uh, the Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. Well, what motivated you, especially in the fact that um, your family had been so close-knit and yes. for most people, they love to stay around family. Yeah. <laughs> so what motivated you? Uh, did, they, did they push you out and say, get out and fend uh, for yourself? Uh, um, tell us about your education sure. that led up to your decision okay. uh, to uh, go to Howard University and sure. uh, after graduation from high school. Sure. Honestly, um, no, they, it was just the opposite. My family was happy to keep me close. <laughs> and um, in fact, I, you know, I, I always joked that I had to run away because everyone was so happy with me just staying where I was. I was, uh, my first year of college actually was at the University of Wisconsin and it was not a welcoming place. Um, as you, you talked about, you know, in, in the South, you had very um, visual Jim Crow but up north, and particularly in Milwaukee, it's, we're, it was very racially polarized. Um, my sisters and I always went to Catholic schools, and we had, you know, in sort of mixed environments. By the time I got through, when my sister Pat went, she was like the only one. But by the time I went through, it was more mixed or even all black. But when I went to University of Wisconsin that first year, I felt very isolated as a black person and, and experienced a lot of racism. So that was certainly one big motivation to like, okay, I have to leave. I went to visit a friend. Uh, a number of kids from my um, church had gone off to Howard and I went for homecoming. And the sense of community that I got was unlike anything I'd ever experienced to be around, among, I'd never in my life been among that many black people. And certainly, you know, this is homecoming. So there are thousands of black people and they're beautiful and they're articulate and they're you know doing wonderful things and it's it was so it was such an encouraging environment that I, I remember calling my dad and saying I have to come here and him thinking oh lord what's how much is that gonna cost me but <laughs> so that's that and that and that became a whole thing you know um and in the end he was so he loved it more than I did my dad ended up when I, I transferred to Howard as a sophomore, and my dad came from for every homecoming, 
even the homecomings after I graduated, my dad would go and he, he has more Howard shirts than I do. But the, the real motivation for all of my uh, moving around and the way that my husband and I raised my children comes from a really sad event, actually. Like I said, we were one of four daughters and my second sister um, at age 24 died in a car accident. A year prior, this was 1986, it was a week before my high school graduation. Um, and that, just that week I had a long, she had moved to Atlanta. She got married the day uh, the year before and moved to Atlanta. So she had been away from home a year. In fact, they were celebrating their um, anniversary on the, di- the day of the car accident. Um, but I had just spoken with her and I was, you know, mad and saying, you know, I want you to come home for my graduation. And she said, yeah, I'll be there in spirit. And little did we know, you know, that she was, we were going to lose her like that. So at 17, almost 18, you know, just graduated from high school, I learned that life is short. You don't realize that until something like this happens completely out of the blue. And for me, that woke me up. And I was like, you know what? If I have something in my heart to do, then I have to do it because I don't know. Tomorrow's not promised. And that's, you know, it's a tough lesson to learn at a young age, but that was the blessing of it because um, if that hadn't happened, I think fear is fear is the one thing that can stop people from doing what God meant for them to do. And that knowledge that, you know, hey, I don't know if my life will be over at 24. If I have this inkling that I should go and, and enroll in this university, I'm going to follow it. So that, that, the blessing of that experience is that when fear comes, I question it. Is this real fear? Is this, or is this something that I really need to um, investigate and do? And mm-hmm. every time, you know, everything that I do, I follow what I believe the spirit is telling me to do. And I raise my children that way. We raise our children to follow their interests because life is too short. And I think a lot of times parents think, okay, you know, I'm going to have this child and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And I'm going to tell them they have to study this in college and they have, no, that's not your place. God did not give those children to you. He's, he had a plan for them. He, he planned for you, the two of you to be their parents and to raise them to be the men and women he wants them to be. So, you know, it's, they can't live your life and theirs. And it's our mm-hmm. job to raise the children up. We've been given the, this ministry. I believe parenting is a ministry to raise children up to find what God put in their hearts. You may not understand it. My oldest child, um, like I said, I, I raised my kids to um, follow their interests. So, of course, we teach them right and wrong and all of that. But I get to know, you have to know them on a personal level to see what interests, what talents they have and help them explore it. Because that is why they're here. And I can look now, my kids are early 20s and all three of them are doing very different things. Nobody's doing law or medicine and I don't want them to because that's not their thing. But they're doing amazing things that I could not have come up with. You know, like if I told them what to do. Um, And I do attribute that to me learning at 17, 18 that, you know what? My life is mine and I need to follow it. And I, it, so that, you know, 
that's the major thing that that motivates me that gets me doing all kinds of things and being brave to step out and try new businesses and all of that outstanding outstanding now you brought us up to uh your experience uh at the uh university of wisconsin and feeling isolated uh and then matriculating to a a predominantly what we call hbcu yes and my question is because most students when they go to a, uh, when they get away from home and away from parents and and away from the uh, strict disciplinary uh, regimens of home, tend to kind of let their hair down and not really focus on what they want to do for the rest of their life. They look at college as a great ride. What motivated you and inspired you? to want to go into law. Okay. So when I got to Howard, at, at that time, I was still thinking government. Um, government, and, and I thought, okay, well, you know, I studied poli-sci in English, so writing was something that was interesting to me. History and policy was interesting to me. And I had some amazing professors that were doing great things. And I thought, you know what? I, I can take this further. I don't know where, you know, like I have talents. I can, you know, I can write, I can, I, I can um, see things very clearly and sort of discern things. And maybe I could be a great service, greater, even greater service. And I thought, you know, as a, as a um, government official, I can reach more people as an attorney. So that was something that um, motivated me. And then we had so many uh, other students. The thing I loved about Howard is, the kind of students, everybody was so um, engaged in, in excellence. Like that is, if you talk to any Howard grad, you're gonna meet somebody who did really well in school or else they, they didn't finish at Howard, you know? Like people who are really serious. And that's the thing I loved about it is, you know, everyone was had a, a good self-esteem. I Like I said, my Losing my sister certainly was a motivator for me to want to do my best. But my other thing was my husband and I met like four months into my being at Howard and um, I, I, we enjoyed each other's company. And I told him, my, my, my dad said, like, if I didn't get great grades, I was coming home. So I wanted to do well anyway. But my husband, <laughs> I, I, I was in the, right. So that was good motivation. So I, but I'm in the every day I had my set hours. I was in the library from six to ten every day and a weekday and Saturday mornings for four hours Saturday morning. That was my schedule. And my husband, now, my now husband, he was one of those people who could get A's without studying. And he'd want to study with me. And I'm like, well, if you want to see me, you got to meet me in the library. So he, he would come to the library because he wanted to be around me. And he got straight A's the whole time we were dating. And I take, I take credit for that. <laughs> All right. So that All was right. the Yeah, so the people you keep, I guess is the bottom line of that. The friends you keep, um, having highly motivated friends. And for my children, uh, the things I tell parents is the most important thing from your kid, you know, coming out, they need to be able to look at themselves in the mirror and love themselves. The thing, I never talk to my kids about their grades. They all are dean's list, graduated with the honors, all kinds of stuff that they've done. And that we never talk to them about it because 
they are inwardly, they have a lot of self-esteem. They want to do well for themselves. So I'm seeing that how that paid off to make sure that they were either enrolled in activities that you know, help them to challenge themselves, help them to see growth in themselves. And for me to always be that feedback when they did something right, to ask them questions that made them tune in to what was it that I did that I can repeat again and to feel proud in themselves. Because if, if it's all about you and making you happy, they're going to go, they're not going to know, they're not going to have that inner compass um, to do, to be excellent for themselves. So I think, you know, I'm always trying to teach parents. Yeah. You got to teach your kids to love themselves. Outstanding, outstanding. And um, that's, that's a great um, motivator for others uh, when they see their parents have achieved, they've seen them, uh, they have overcome, they've adapted. And when they see that, that's uh, self-motivation within itself and you don't have to put a sticker or dangle a carrot over their heads uh, for them to uh, want to achieve in life for themselves. So I, I, I applaud you and your husband, uh, Dr. Gardner, as well. And I'm sure he has a story to tell. And where is he from? He's from Dallas. He grew up in Dallas. Well, I know that uh, this past week then perhaps uh, struck pretty close to home uh, with the weather condition down in uh, down in yeah. Dallas, Texas. Yeah, luckily, you know, everybody he reached out to, they were doing fine. So that, that was good news. All right. Okay. Uh, I do want to say at this time that you are listening to our podcast this morning, Crossroads. And this is uh, the Black Experience, Africa to America. And our special guest this morning is Sheila Adams Gardner, uh, who is giving us insights into uh, life in the northern part of, um, of America, as well as her northeastern experience where she is. And what I would like to do further is to talk about, uh, you have authored uh, two books. Yes. One is entitled Two Houses, One Family, and the other is Made of Love. Uh, could you just give me some idea of what motivated you? Uh, and I know you talked about your passion for writing, mm -hmm. your passion for studying and research and all, but what was the uh, prevailing motivation for writing these two books? So those two books are children's books, and they are based on my experience growing up in, you know, with divorced parents across two homes. And also the, the second book, Made of Love, is about a, a little boy who, it's, it's for toddlers whose parents don't live together, but he's also being raised in a loving, one loving big family. And those are really, um, and of course, the characters are African-American. And my, my goal there is to change this narrative about co-parenting co as being um, something terrible. I believe it's really, number one, that there are more families like mine in the world than, they, than people know. And some people, when they embark upon, like when their, their marriage or their relationships break down and they have children, 
they automatically gear up for a fight because they have only seen images of that kind of dysfunction in, in media and in books. And there are basically no, you know, the children's books on this subject or with these kinds of families are not like the one I grew up in. And so I felt that it was important for society to see positive, loving, co-parenting relationships like I had. So that was um, number one. And also, you know, again, the stigma. I, I think that, you know, when I was growing up, like I said, we, I remember we went to Catholic school and I was, uh, gosh, second grade, second, third grade around there when my parents divorced. And I remember people sometimes would say things like, oh, you're, oh, she's from a broken home. And they would look at us like curious, like as if we had two heads, uh, like as if something was going to happen. And I remember having this sense of, as a child, having this sense of shame where I didn't, I didn't deserve that. And I also felt like they, they think that my family is something that it isn't. And that idea of sort of being stereotyped um, and the unfairness of it all. And if I could just spare that for kids to see that, you know, find to come across a book with the kids, the family relationships look like theirs and it's positive and the kids are um, doing well and they're loved. I think it's really important. So that's why I, I created those two books. Okay, how, how has that been received? And do you use that uh, as part of your uh, profession? Uh, yes. Because I see where you're dealing with, and you have a company that you founded called yes. Cooperative Strategies Family Law. Yes. Uh, is that part of uh, the dynamic uh, of your practice? Absolutely. I do share that that is to support, you know, to help my parents. Um, I do mediation. I do the only kind of litigation like going to court. And I've done this is representing kids themselves who have whose parents are in highly contentious um, custody battles. So um, twice, like I did a, a three day trial a couple of years ago where this poor child um was caught in the middle of the parents' antagonism against each other. And it was, it's painful. It's so painful to watch because it's beautiful child, sweet and bright, but the parents are so caught up in their hatred for each other that they were really um, hurting that child. And it's to see, you know, I, I prefer, I work with people um, in my company who have decided I don't want to fight it out in court. I want to sit down with you and hash this out and come up with an agreement to, to spare our child or support our child or children. Um, because I, I definitely work with people on the other hand. And that's where uh, I, this, this one particular, one particular kid, he was, he had done so, I mean, it was so painful him the back and forth and the fighting and all the things that the parents were doing they wouldn't talk to each other um and even to tell the one one parent that the other one had taken the kid to have inoculations so it just so happened this was right before a trial that i went through paperwork and saw that one parent had gotten inoculated got the child inoculated and didn't tell the other one and the other one had it planned and was going to that day get the child inoculated and he was too young to know what was happening to say what was happening, but because of their dysfunction, they could have really harmed their child. 
And it was things like that that happened. One day the child is sick and he needed his medication, but the parent that had him when he got the medication didn't tell the other one. And he ended up being reinfected. So um, the work that I do is if you were really having a difficult time, you can't talk to one another, I do what's called parenting coordination, where it's a little more hands-on. I could be that, that third-party person who decides, you know, if there's a, for a tiebreaker for people who are just cannot work together. Um, I also, which I prefer to do, is mediate and do co-parenting coaching for people. I also do, as a lawyer, what's called collaborative law. It's, a, it's about 20-year-old practice where you trained in it, and in that situation, each party, each um, party in the couple has their own attorney. Like I would represent one of the parties and there will be a, a therapist or two therapists involved. And we all work as a team to help them come up with an agreement so they don't fight it out in court. So those are the ways that I help people. Again, for me, I don't take, I tell people all the time, I don't do this for money. I do it because I believe how important it is for kids to grow up like I did. I think, you know, I've been married 27 years. My sister, my oldest sister, 40, 41 years this year, and my sister next to me, 20, 30 years. And I know it's because we were loved by our parents. They, it was, their divorce, it's not divorce that hurts kids, it's conflict. If they see you fighting, if they feel that tension, if they're witness to all of that, that makes, that lays a foundation for them that will harm their ability to have good, long-standing relationships as adults. People don't see that. And parents will start out, you know, very combative. And, but in about two or three years, they're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But for those children, two or three years of watching that kind of conflict lays a foundation for them that impacts them at school and that impacts their friendships romantic relationships in the future, it lays a terrible foundation for them. And by the time the therapist helps them figure that out, you know, it it, it could be too late. They could have had, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of difficulty in life. So that's why I'm so passionate about what I do. Outstanding. And uh, that's something, especially with our families, uh, <laughs> with our backgrounds uh, being uh, extended families uh, through slavery, uh, the practice of uh, uh, a male fathering children and not being able to actually support them. Uh, families being separated uh, by being sold off, sold away. Uh, oh, and so we've had this uh, dynamics in, um, our history. And so uh, the, the sad part about it is that so many of our families don't have a Sheila Adams Gardner to help them to navigate through all of the uh, negatives that go along with uh, separations uh, and divorces. And I volunteer a lot. Um, and dads are like, I, I volunteer, I haven't done it you know, with the pandemic in a while, but I would go down to the family courthouse in D.C. and volunteer in their self-help center for people who can't afford attorneys and mm -hmm. just need some help. And I, I always, you know, dads, 
I have such a heart for dads because I had such a wonderful dad um, who was present in my life all the time. And I think labels, when people say single parent, it doesn't mean that the father wasn't involved. And being a father isn't, isn't just about money. And I think people mistake, people don't realize, you know, research says that children whose fathers are involved, you know, in school or involved in their lives, they do better in school, they have higher grades, they are, they are better behavior, all that. And I think sometimes, mom, you know, in some instances, I see where dads don't know that. And they, they think that because they don't have money or a job, that they can't be around their children. They're absolutely wrong. Children love, children don't care about what you give them. They want your time. They need your time. They need you to read a book to them. If you can't afford it, that, that's okay. The kid needs you. They need you. They want to see you you can help them just by being around them. And I think a lot of times dads, I, when I tell dads that, I'm saying, you're really important to your child. Um, and they, they look at me and I tell, you know, I give them the statistics. It's like, it, you know, you keep trying to get that job, but don't not be around your child. And there are moms who say, well, he can't see my child because he didn't give me, like, no. You're, and all the statistics say that when those kids grow up, they distance themselves from the mother. Um, they distance themselves from the mother when they do that. So you're not helping your child, you're not helping yourself. They need to be around their dad. He, he needs to, you know, the kid needs to be the financial support for sure. But more than that, they need your presence. I, I know that there's nothing that can uh, substitute uh, for a, a strong male figure in the life mm -hmm. of a child. Uh, to provide that support that they need, uh, even just for that bonding purpose of yeah. saying that uh, there is a man in my life and I certainly appreciate everything that he does. Yeah. yeah. I also yeah, want to share, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> also, uh, I know that in addition to your writing, uh, inter, uh, in addition to your law practice, inter, in addition to uh, giving of your time and your talent and your resources, you also are passionate about family history. Yes, sir. And I would like for you to share some things with us, if you don't mind, uh, regarding uh, your research and your findings and and all of the things that you have done to help make uh, better known uh, your own family as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, um, as you know, <laughs> as Adams, we have our family reunion every other year. And maybe you can help me. I don't even know when it began. I don't know if you know when they began, but... Our Adams um, family reunions are every other year, and they travel between Memphis, Milwaukee, Detroit, and Chicago. And this is something that I have grown up with my whole life. I can't even remember when, when we started doing this, but in 1994, oh, and also our, our, our family reunions are huge, <laughs> and they're, they're like conventions. They really are. So we have, the first night we have a banquet 
And in Milwaukee and some of the others, we do banquet and uh, dance and entertainment. And um, during that time, there, you know, we do history and we may do awards and things like that. On Saturday, we have our big picnic. And on Sunday, we have a church gathering maybe, or but definitely a brunch and, and sort of commune on Sunday. And this is just a, a custom. And in 1994, I went to Memphis for our reunion. Our, and it's something again, you know, we, it's Friday night, we were at the banquet and my great uncle, your uncle, our, my great uncle Caesar, uh, was given the family history, something that I was accustomed to him doing all the time. So I'm sitting there, you know, picking over the chicken or whatever as he's giving our history. And he holds up a photo and he says, this is my grandmother, she was a slave. And I looked up at those words, I looked up and saw the most beautiful woman in this professional photo, fancy with her big fancy hat with the bow and her beautiful dress with the brooch and hair done and just beautiful. I have never seen a black woman in an old photo like that, in that old professional photo. And here's my great uncle telling me that she belonged to me. And at that moment, my life literally changed. I got up, after that, I made a beeline to Uncle Caesar. I'm like, listen, I have to have that photo. <laughs> and he's like, okay, well, I can't give you this one, <laughs> but you give me a call um, on Sunday. So for about six, eight weeks, every Sunday, when I went back, I was living in DC actually um, at the time. And every Sunday after he'd gone to church and he taught Sunday school, I call him and I ask him questions and you know, tell me everything about your grandparents, everything you can remember. And I would jot down all these notes. And finally, after six weeks, he took the picture down because this was before internet, before cell phone photos. He took the picture down um, to Sears and Roebuck and had it copied and sent it to me. And I tell you, that, that day was way up there in my life, um, just to connect with my idea of what, who we were as a family and as a people was tied to these false narratives or just an adapted narrative, like Alex Haley's roots. I didn't, I didn't know what, what we'd come from. And Uncle Caesar proceeded to tell me about this woman and her husband, Moses, um, my third great grandmother and grandfather who were literate, who, you know, Moses had learned, Moses and his sister were children when they were taken from, they were enslaved, they were taken from Georgia and sent to Mississippi as little children. And Moses was an um, industrious person. He learned to read. And Uncle Caesar told me that he he tricked a white child into teaching him to read by um, giving the white child jackals lessons. It was a game. And at the time, Uncle Caesar didn't know what jackals was. But in my research, I found that jackals is a colonial version of the game jacks with the ball and the, and the little metal jack things. So he learned to read by you know, making the, the white kid teach him. And then he'll teach him a little bit more until he, you know, he was literate. And I, 
Um, he told you that story and that their six boys were educated. They went to Alcorn and then I guess Kosciuszko and that they owned their cotton farm and that they were, that the Adams family in Holmes County, Mississippi were more educated than anyone black and white in that county. Up until that moment, I didn't know that. He also shared with me about our Caesar family, um, Adams married Caesar into Caesar family. His, his first name is after his grandfather. And he told me a story that our great, his, gosh, I would be my third great grandfather, Caesar, his name was Julius. And he knew that Julius had been in the Civil War, but didn't have the information and really wanted to know. And so I, you know, I, back then there was not internet really the way it is now. So I, I, living in DC, I would travel to the archives and you go there, you get microfilm and I would be there all day because I was still looking for work. And um, this is right when I first moved to, to DC. So I would spend every week, I would spend time at the national archives and find census records of our family members. And I tell you, the moment I found Moses and find those names, I have jotted down on my paper. I still have my notes too. When I find those people that Caesar, Uncle Caesar told me about in the census record, it was like a gold mine. Like they really exist. They became very real. And the strength that I felt knowing that these people's blood was in my body, the things that they did and what they endured, um, was tremendous for me. So, and it's addicting. <laughs> but with my kid, once I started becoming, you know, became a mom, I had to sort of set it aside. But since then, um, especially once Ancestry.com became a thing for me, I have been finding so many things. And I was one of my best finds, honestly. I tried looking for Julius Caesar in Mississippi, trying looking for uh, Civil War information. I could never find anything. And Uncle Caesar had said to me, you know, some people joke because of his name was Julius Caesar that maybe he worked for the Confederacy. And, you know, that a lot of slaves were forced to fight in the Confederacy. So I thought, you know, I can't find him. Maybe that's true. But just about four years ago now, four or five years ago, I found a census record that said he was born in Virginia. And when I looked that up, all the information just poured out. And I could not believe it because my children, he was born, uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar was in fact in the Civil War. He was in the first um, United States colored troop that came out of Washington, D.C. He was born in Alexandria, Virginia, where my children were all born. He was a baker and he was free. And I had no idea. And I felt, I mean, to be able to bring that back, I mean, Uncle Caesar has long died, but at our last Adams reunion, I was able to share with the family that I had found the answer and I felt like I was bringing it back for our uncle. And just knowing that we have warriors in our blood, we have, you know, I have on all of my sides, my, my grand, the Adams grand side, we have the Civil War, found one on my Coleman, and we have several on my mother's side. And just knowing that all these people are part of who I am um, gives me such strength and to give that to my kids. My kids 
never hearing anything negative about black people from in this house. And they and Jim, for them to be able to know the truth about who we are and know that it's in them is so important, I think, to, as you were at saying, um, Dr. Lee, uh, Dr. Adams, about how, you know, what motivates you. To me, mm-hmm. for me, my children, their, their self-esteem is tied up in their history, understanding who their ancestors were, so that when those inklings come to them of strength, they know, like, yeah, I can do this. They did it, and they're in me. I can do this. So I think it, it informs them. It encourages them. Um, it, it certainly does that for me. You can't tell me nothing. You know, I come from, mm-hmm. I come from great people, um, and I have just, and it's learned. I've learned a lot about history. So my research is not just with ancestry. So I go deep and figure out what's going on in the county at the time, what's going on in the country. I get newspaper articles. I do a lot to really get a sense of what they went through um, and what it was like. And I, I, I give them such reverence. I have their pictures in my home. I get up in the morning, I walk through my dining room. I see that beautiful woman on my wall that, I, that Uncle Caesar held up. I, you know, my husband has enslaved ancestors I have on our wall. My kids grow up seeing these people and, and knowing their powerful stories. Um, so that, Outstanding. That. <laughs> right. Well, um, you have certainly enlightened us on today in so many different subjects, especially dealing with uh, the African experience uh, as black men and women. Uh, and I want to thank our listening audience as well. We have have a lot of uh, listening, live listeners and I'm looking at your names on this morning. Some of you have names, some of you have alphabets. And um, uh, with my Southern uh, uh, dialect, I wouldn't attempt to uh, butcher your names on this morning, but I certainly thank you so very much uh, for listening in and others uh, expressed uh, uh, regret uh, in regards to your uh, talking about your sister's uh, uh, demise as far as uh, automobile accident, mm-hmm. um, your parents uh, separating and divorcing at an early age, uh, your uh, having to experience uh, the coldness uh, of uh, college education experience. So you, your life has run a full gamut. But and in addition to that, your research and your business. Um, but one thing I I do want to ask you, I I believe as a writer, before we leave, uh, do you have a poem or something, uh, words of expression you'd like to share with us before sure. you leave? Sure, I wrote. I do. I wrote a poem about who I am, and it really sums up how I feel about what ancestors, how important ancestors and ancestry is. I'd love to share that with you. Um, And this is my my poem called I Am. I am a descendant of civil rights and civil war warriors who fought for the idea of American democracy, of preachers, elders, and church leaders who believed in a God of all things, of teachers, principals, and scholars who elevated with the power of education, 
of entrepreneurs who conquered fear to live their dreams, of enslaved men and women, skilled carpenters, masons, iron workers, cotton weavers and cotton pickers, whose blood, sweat, and so many tears built this country that robbed them of their dignity and then their lives. I am the sum of people who endured, excelled, and loved and hoped for me. I am light, I am fortitude, I am integrity, I am truth, I am hard work, I am brilliance, I am compassion, I am joy. I am a good ancestor in training. I am a unique part of the creator's plan for this universe. I am Sheila Denise Adams Gardner. Wow, that is so profound and <laughs> certainly um, you didn't get that out of a book, but it came from the heart. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that from the heart, as we say down here, reaches the heart. And so we thank you for uh, your kindness. Uh, thank you for coming uh, on our podcast, uh, exhibiting such uh, strong but humble characteristics uh, that is long associated with the family. And we certainly thank you um, for that. And we look forward to hearing from you again. Our thank only you. regret is that our podcast uh, generally only lasts one hour and it doesn't do your life, your history <laughs> and your story justice. But we certainly thank you for allowing us the privilege to come into your life on this Saturday morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to be here with you. And I want to thank all of the podcast listening audience as well. And we will be coming back again next Saturday. And we want to thank each and every one for this month of Black History, the African uh, experience living the black life in America from Africa. Thank you so very much. You have been listening to our Crossroads podcast with our special guest, Sheila Adams Gardner, who is the founder of Cooperative Strategies, also an author, mediator, an attorney, a wife, a mother, a sister, and so many other things. And I, the only thing that I didn't ask you about was did you uh, join a sorority while you were oh, at yes. uh, Howard University? Did, not at Howard. I, I, um, I am a Delta, and I became a Delta when I was in law school. All right. There you have it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, one other thing I should say, too, is not sorority, but I am doing anti-racism work with a white friend of mine and I. So that's been we, um, been really good to be able to share with white women our our struggle and what we need for them. We've been we're doing our ninth workshop tomorrow, and that's been some good work that I've been able to um sort of add to the anti-racism work that's going on in our world today. So that, yeah, that's one more thing I forgot to share. Well, you have so many, you wear so many hats and everything, it's just <laughs> hard to, uh, to change them all. 
And I just want to congratulate you and thank you uh, for persevering. Uh, this podcast today has been inspirational. Uh, it has been uh, informational. It has been educational. And for me, it has been transformational. And thank you so very thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much. You take care. Same here. Bless you and give my love to all of your family. Will do. You do the same. Take care. Bye.